Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Yeah, my name is Rich. I am a recovered alcoholic. And at this point, because we are now moving into the ninth step, and that's what was happening in my life at this point. Um, and I, I know it's been a long afternoon, and uh, I've been taught that the mind cannot absorb what the behind cannot tolerate. So I'll try to be respectful about that. Um, I will warn you that I get excited about this part of the game. This is where my entire life changed. Um, coming off of page 76 is where we just cast, just left off. Um, I call 76 the pep rally page. I think that's where Bill is, he's given us a pep rally. He's reminding us what's going on. We've then completed step seven. Now we need more action without which we find faith without works is dead. More action? My gosh, we just did this fifth step. I mean, you gotta be kidding me. That took a lot writing all that stuff down. And sharing it, he's saying, well, that's great. He told us that after the third step. Well, this step, this step, um, you know, might feel wonderful right now. It will have little lasting permanent effect unless at once followed by more strenuous action. We need to face and be rid of these things. You know, it keeps us moving. And that's why I like each of these steps. If we follow the words, it tells us exactly when to do a step, how to do a step, and what we're going to get. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. What do you think next means, Rich? No, uh, like a week from now, Jim. No, that's me. That, you know. Uh, so, you know, now, now he's telling us right here. Now we need more action. Well, when? Now. I just did this seventh step thing, where I asked that the things that were objectionable to me be removed. By this point in the game, my behavior, like Cass's, was objectionable to me. A lot of my life is objectionable to a lot of you for a long time, but now it was starting to become objectionable to me. Because I was starting to live a sober life, but when I would act, um, when I would act anyway, you know, if I was acting, it was inappropriate. And um, now they hit us at the bottom of this next paragraph. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. Those going, come on, kids, come on, kids, stay in the game, stay in the game. You know, he's almost patting you on the butt, like get back in there. There's more work to be done, and that's what it was. And we then go on. You know, and he tells us, we, we probably have some misgivings about doing this. You know, this is scary stuff that's about to happen. Um, but remember, at the top of 77, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Some people do not like what I'm about to say. This is my experience and opinion. Everything to this point in Alcoholics Anonymous, you might as well take it. You might as well take all the work you've done and throw it out the window if that's where you're going to stop. Everything up to step nine in Alcoholics Anonymous is absolutely theoretical. You have evaluated yourself, you've put it on paper, um, you, you've looked at yourself, you've got a sponsor, you've talked to God about it. You've given, all this is wonderful and does not amount to a hill of beans if we stop there. I believe at this point what happens is I'm starting to get right with God, I'm starting to get right with myself. I don't believe either of those two can completely be accomplished until I'm right with the rest of the world. And that's what 8 and 9 does. It's the third leg of the triangle. We're going to look at it like a triangle, which is something that we're familiar with. And that triangle is just going to collapse if I don't put that third side on it. And if you think about it, by this point in the game, what has happened? 
You know, I've made a grosser list of, of my handicaps, um, in other words, my defects. And I've got a pretty a decent handle on what the big ones are, at least by this point, my first time through. Um, the one thing that was self-evident to me, by the time I got through that fifth step, in my fourth column, there was only one common denominator in every single relationship in my life, and that was the fact that I was in it. Because all the other names were different. There was only one guy who had something to do with all of them. Me. You know? And by the time I'm doing these defects, my gosh, I mean, all I could see was it was on in black and white. And I think that's why it says we put it in black and white. It was my own handwriting about what a jerk I was. What a scrap people the life I created. Was I ready to have this stuff removed at that point? You better believe it. I mean, what a disaster I am. You know, I didn't... <laughs> I didn't have a great, you know, feeling of relief that the world was great. I had a feeling of like, what, what a mess I've created. And that's why it says, good, good, good. We got you where we want you. Keep moving. Now we're going to set out to make all of this right. This is where we start to right the ship. You know, you guys shoot you the maritime provinces. What am I going to tell you? You ever seen a tanker turn around? It doesn't turn on the dime, right? Righting the ship. You know, we correct the course one degree at a time. And if you send one of those ships just one degree off course, you know, in a week it's at an entirely different place. You know, imagine a lifetime of sobriety. If we could correct our course with God's help just one degree, and we're able to stay sober over a period of time where our lives are going to end up, we can't even imagine. And as a matter of fact, when we start this thing, it tells us, Top of page 78, beginning of the ninth step. His faults, not ours, are discussed. He tells us how to make an amends. We stick to our own. Our manner is calm, frank, and open. We will be gratified with the result. We may not like it, but we'll be gratified with it. I'm told that step nine is about righting the wrong. I'm setting right the wrong. I am not setting right the relationship. If that happens as a result, that's great. My job is to break the wrong, not the relationship. I always wanted to break the relationship. I wanted you to like me again. I wanted you to accept me again. That's got nothing to do with this step. I'm to break the wrong. What happens after that is frankly none of my business. But it does tell me that nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. And that was my experience. In nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. And this to me is where faith and belief started to, started to mix. This is where I found, I started to use the word God. Um, I wasn't a big, you know, God person coming through these doors. You know, as a matter of fact, the mere mention made me bristle with antagonism. I'm that guy. And this is where the wheelbarrow story came in. I don't know if you guys want to bore you with it, but there's a little old man. There's a wire going across the Grand Canyon. You know, I mean, it's a tightrope. And this little old guy's about 80. He's pushing a wheelbarrow across this tightrope. And he goes all the way across the Grand Canyon and comes all the way back. All the way back, does this about three times. There's a young guy my age, he's watching it. He's just thinking, that is amazing. This guy doesn't miss a step. He doesn't falter. He doesn't stumble. Every single time, all the way across and all the way back. He says to that old guy, he says, that is amazing that you do that. He said, what's wrong? You don't believe that I could go back and forth without falling down there to my death? He says, yeah, I absolutely believe that you can do it. I just watched you do it three times. The old man says, well, do you have faith that I can make it across and not fall? He says, absolutely. I watched you do it three times. 
The old man looked at him and said, good, and get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> that is the difference between belief and faith. To this point, I could believe a whole lot about AA. Now I got to have, start to have some faith. I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow. That's what this step is asking me to do. And it tells us they pinpoint us. We start off, you know, halfway down. Most alcoholics owe money. We do not dodge our creditors. I owe the IRS a lot of money for a lot of reasons. Perhaps we committed a criminal offense. I got to you folks wanted in three states, California, Colorado, and Maryland. I didn't have the trifecta, which I call the trifecta is folks that have a valid driver's license, a registration, and car insurance, all in your same name from the same state. I mean, that is that is big time. I look at you folks with all that have that going on. I mean, I call it the trifecta because you got a better shot of hitting the lottery, you know, than having those three things all at the same time in my world. I never had that. Top of the next page. Maybe we're divorced or remarried having kept up alimony and divorce. Support payments. Next paragraph down. Reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience. We ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences may be. We may lose our position, reputation, face jail, but we are willing and we have to be. We must not shrink at anything. That's my paragraph, baby. I love it. And um, I don't know that I have anything to add or say to that. And if that doesn't get you fired up and, and you know, we're saying our prayers, I don't know that anything's going to. Uh, my first one was, he said, you start with people that are closest. Uh, this is not a step that you do alone. Uh, if I would have been out there today, and I would have gotten to ask the question of Cass, which I'm going to ask later, um, I don't know how people go and do the eighth and the ninth step with their sponsor if they do their fourth and their fifth step with a priest, clergy, or somewhere else. I know our book says you can do that, but I have no idea how I would do the future steps with them. If they don't trust me enough to share that with me, how can I guide them in steps eight and nine? My eighth step list is nothing more than my fourth step list. Thank God I didn't burn it, set on fire, send it out to sea, bring it as ritual stuff that I hear about sometimes. You know, meeting, put it in the bottom, cast it out. You know, this stuff. It was that list, plus I made a harms list, which is just anybody I heard I wasn't resentful towards, it wasn't sexual in nature, it wasn't fear-based. It was what Cass was talking about. I am always going towards a drink. And if you are between me and that drink, I might not even know you, but God bless you, because you're going down. You know? If you are between me and a drink, it is fair game. Anything is love will happen to you. And there's something, you know, there's no resentment if you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sorry about your luck. That was a harms list that I created. You know, and that goes, and I take this stuff to my sponsor, and he directed me. Um, you know, which a, a lot of them just got crossed off the list. You know, a lot of the ex-girlfriends and stuff like that that I wanted to break the relationship, not the wrong They've long since forgotten about me. You know, what I really wanted was, you know, back in the big bed or something. He's always, you know what you could do for her? Stay away from her. Do not call her. Do not write her. Stay away. And some of those are the hardest ones to respect that. And that's how the amend is made. Stay away. But he said, you know, you're going to start with your mom. My mom, um, she couldn't look at me anymore. I was talking to the guy at lunch. He was talking about his head dropping to his that was my mom. She looked at me. She loved me. 
Mom's always lonely. She's just disappointed and tired and fed up. Her head always dropped to her feet you know, when, when she looked at me. And that hurt as much as anything in my life. And I started, I was told to have a date night with my mom. Pick a night where I can take her out and do something. Take her to dinner, take her to lunch. If she'll go, take her. And, you know, I asked her, she talked school. And she said, Friday nights are good for me. They weren't good for me. Uh, because by this point, I'm pretty involved in AA. You know, and on Friday nights happens to be one of the better groups in my area called the Action Group. And it's a step study. Uh, even though they do it out of the 12 and 12, they're talking about a step. You know, that's pretty good for my area. And I like the action group. And they all go out to dinner afterwards, or go bowling, or do something fun. And they're an active group of alcoholics anonymous talking about the solution. And I like being there. But Mom said Friday nights with dinner. You know, and I start showing up. At, and at first I showed up because I had to. He called me the first spiritual principle of alcoholics anonymous. It's sober men of integrity do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it. Start showing up with doing And I started taking her out and just spending a long time with her. And somewhere during the course of this, um, she started looking across the table at me and said, Don, I never knew. And she started asking me how it was going. And somewhere along the line, I wanted to go to dinner with her more than I wanted to go to the Third Street meeting. I didn't have to be at dinner with her. I wanted to be at dinner with her. I don't know what number dinner that was. I wasn't telling. It just happened. We started to be friends. She started to you know, gain a little trust in me. You know, a, a, a day of time. It didn't happen overnight. Um, I'll tell you, at two years sober, I was surfing. With, surfing's my favorite thing in the world. So I go all over the world surfing. I can't get nothing. And um, I'm surfing this place right down the street called Assateague Island with a sober buddy named Dave. The sun was out. The wind was offshore. The dolphin were just going right through the waves with us. It was one of those days where God was showing off. It's the only way I could put it. It was all coming together, you know. And I'm driving home, and the thought goes through my mind, because I had to pass her house, I'm going to stop and just give my mother a hug and kiss today and tell her I love her. And I stopped, and I did that. And my mother just started pouring down the tears, and she said, Rich, get out of here. Get out of here. And just started shoving me out the door. Get out of here. You've been drinking. And she slammed the door and went to my sponsor's house. I said, can you believe this? I'm two years sober. She just closed the door on me. And started crying. All I wanted to do was give her a hug and a kiss and tell her I loved her. And she thinks I've been drinking again. And he pointed me to the section in the book, you know, that says 10 or 15 years of drinking will make a skeptic out of anyone. When's the last time you ever just stopped by your mother's house to give her a hug and a kiss and tell her you loved her? And not ask for money or you needed something or wanted something. You know, that's bizarre behavior for you. She had every right to think that. You've earned it. It's good to have a sponsor. I didn't see it that way. Not at all. And, uh, you know, but that changed over a period of time. And we became friends. And uh, I've gotten to help her through a divorce and uh, all kinds of stuff. I've gotten to be a son. Well, taught me how to be a son. It turns out I wanted to be a son. With every part of my body, alcohol didn't let me be a son. As much as I, I wouldn't have been able to verbalize that. And my sister, she hadn't talked to me for six years. I had two season tickets to the Ravens. They're not cheap. That's a Baltimore's football And my sponsor says, my sister lives three hours away from me in Baltimore. He says, send those tickets to your sister. She's got a job now. She's in HR, and she can take somebody from work or something. Send her those tickets. You don't even like football games or you want to have sooner. What you liked was hanging out in the parking lot, doing the tailgate, being the big shot, you know, setting up the bar, the table, the parking lot, 
carbon prime rib, you know, you're in the restaurant, Rich, you had to be the big shot, you know, and pouring everybody drinks and having the nicest spread. You know, half the time you wouldn't even know what happened. You'd be too drunk before the game started. And now that you're sober, you don't want to sit there for three years. You told me that. You're bored to death. It was right. And I said, those tickets are expensive. She hadn't even talked to me in six years. He said, I didn't ask you. I told you, send them to your sister. <laughs> so I sent them to my sister. Begrudgingly. You know, none of this has to do with anything I want or think or feel. There's nothing more useless than alcoholics and others than what I think I should be doing. Or how I feel it will turn out. And I sent them, and nothing happened. Another week went by, he said, send her the next set. And I sent them. Something did happen that time. The phone rang that night about 10 o'clock. And there was a voice on the other end of the phone I hadn't heard for a while. And she said, did you see that last touchdown where he threw that into the end zone and the guy came back and we tied the game up? And then we went into overtime. Were you watching that? And yeah, I was watching that, but I was also talking to my sister for the first time in a long while. And we met on some type of common soil with these stupid tickets that had moved away in the first place. You know, and nine times out of ten, the unexpected happens. I didn't see that coming. You know, I'll tell you what else I didn't see coming. She bought a little house at a place called Fells. Federal Hill, it's outside of Fells Point in Baltimore City, about three hours away. And it's kind of one of those old city areas that they're, they're rehabbing. They need a lot of work. And she said uh, she wanted to paint it, and I said, I'll help. I started working all weekend, on the weekend I would drive for three hours and spend the weekend there and help me paint the house. And she said, I'm hard about one put on new hardwood floors in the kitchen. I spent my, every weekend I had something better to do. It was the last thing I felt like doing at the end of working all weekend. And I would drive for three hours and I would help her. You know why? Brothers do. You guys told me that. And I thought this was something like superheroes do or something. It's not. And I'm just told a word or a word for that. It's just what brothers do. And it turns out, when I was doing this, how I felt when I would leave was incredible. Because deep inside, I couldn't verbalize it, but all I wanted to do was be a big brother. I was a big brother back until I turned about 10 or 11. And I lost that and gave up that right. And her and I became friends over, you know, talking football and painting the house and working side by side and figuring out how to lay a hardwood floor for me to work this way, you know. Yeah, and to be honest with you, it didn't look that great when we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, we had fun doing it. And she started to become one of my best friends in the world. I mean, we talk every day. Every day. And, um, you know, some time went by, and, and I don't have any money doing this because I'm, I'm always paying. I'm starting, I'm sweeping floors in a picture frame shop. It was my first job. Um, you know, the sawdust, and I'm sweeping the sawdust off the floor. And uh, the guy I'm working for is 18 years sober at that point. He played his AA speakers tapes, man, over and over and over, all day long. And I, I could tell Clancy's story if he got sick of that. I could tell John Harrison's story. I could tell, I mean, all these guys, I could just listen to him. I'm sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. You know, and then, um, and I'm sending money to the IRS. IRS, no matter what I made, he said, just send something. You know, I call them, set up a payment and send something. I said, they're going to lock me up. They haven't heard from me in 12 years. He said, they're not going to lock up the goose that lives the golden egg. They'd rather get something than nothing. They can't get blood out of a stone. They've got 100% of nothing for 12 to 14 years. They'd be thrilled to death to get 20 bucks a week, I bet. And that's not the way my mind operated. Unless I had the full $26,000 to send them, I wouldn't go send them anything. 
And he said, no, no, no. We send something. We send what we can. And I, sure enough, I sat down with the people at the IRS. We put together a payment plan. I, I, I sent them what I could. And I'm doing that. I'm driving up with her on the weekends and dinner with mom on Friday before I head to Baltimore. And all of a sudden, you know, my boss fired me from the, from the sweeping job. That's the press <coughs> when you're like, you know, 10 months over and you find out you can't sweep the floor ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't get fired a lot drinking. You know, I'm getting sober. Fired sober. And then this next job presented itself of, you know, vacuuming out swimming pools. And this was like the greatest job in AA. I, I live in like a resort community with a lot of big buildings and swimming pools. And I would vacuum, you know, the sand out so that people could swim. And it turns out, that people on vacation like to go swimming by like 10 a.m. That was a novel concept to me. I didn't know people got up before me. But I'd have to have all these pools, like six or eight of them, done by 10 a.m. So I'd start at like 4.30 in the morning, which isn't a big deal when you go to bed sober at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Turns out I think there's something really cool about waking up with the sun and seeing it come up. I don't know about your experience. I haven't talked to anybody that's ever, you know, got ready to die. I like to be around people that are getting ready to die, sober or otherwise. I like sitting by them and talking and just being around them and hearing what they have to say and how they feel, especially sober folks. They've been in this program a lot. A lot of those old guys in my area, and I have six of them that have been by. Um, one of the things I've never heard any of them say is, you know, Rich, I wish I hadn't seen so many sunrises or sunsets. I just never heard that. You know, I wish I'd worked wish I hadn't spent so much time with my family and people who really matter. There's just certain things you don't hear when people are getting ready to die. But I'm watching the sun come up and I'm vacuuming out these pools as fast as I can because I'm done when I'm done. My job is to do a good job and, and, and to get done by 10 a.m. And then I can go to noon meetings of AA. I can go surfing in the afternoon. I can go to the 8 o'clock meeting. Uh, I can go out with you all wherever you're going afterwards because at this point I don't even care what you're doing. I'm just going. You know? Wherever you're in, I'm in. Let's go. My life's getting good in AA. And I'm broke, but I don't care. It seems like I always got enough. That's a weird thing about being sober. You know, a little's a lot. I don't know if you guys have experienced that. A little's a lot. When before, a lot was never enough. And all this is going on. I'm sweeping these pools. And one day, um, my sister calls. And she said, I want you to talk to him. And she puts on his boyfriend that she's had. I mean, a lot. And, and his name was Justin. And he said, you know, I know that your father's not a part of your sister's life anymore. And I know you are a big part of her life. You guys talk all the time. You're a very special man in her life. And I love her very much. And I'd like to ask you for your little sister's hand in marriage if you did. Can you imagine such a thing? Somebody asking a drunk like me a question like that. And I, and, I, and I said to him, um, you love her? He said, absolutely. I said, you spend the rest of your life trying to make her happy? He said, you bet. He said, you drink? Could not have had You know, and then the next day, she called back. And she said, hey, would you do me the honor of walking me down the aisle and giving me a word? You know, and I did that so so, you know, she sent me a thing about wanting to go get the tuxedo fitted, and I was really for that. And I'm not missing any more appointments, and I'm not getting late for anything else. I can't afford to be late in this one more thing in my life. 
I wasn't there for those people for a long time. There was a lot of Christmases and Thanksgiving. I wasn't there. A lot of special events for people that loved and cared about me. I don't miss it. You know, and that was one of the coolest days of my life, walking down that aisle. Then I had a uh, buddy named Nathan. And with each one of these amends, you know, things have happened in my life that I could not have dreamed of. You know, I thought the IRS was going to lock me up, not say what this one was. I couldn't believe my mother. Like, buddies. You know, my sister just me to And with each one of these, my God is growing. You know? And I have a sponsor that would always say anytime I'm scared, so I was really like, you need to get a bigger God. And boy, that used to rub me wrong, but what was he right? And I have a God, and I think it's what Alcoholics Anonymous requires of it, of us. A God of experience, not a God of belief. It's a God acquired by faith and experience. Alcoholics Anonymous is a living, spiritual experience. By these things happening in my life that could happen no other way, I then gain and start doing business with a God that is personal to me. None of you may get what I'm talking about, but I do. I may not get what you're talking about, but you do. And that is the coolest thing. Everyone else tried to tell me every place I've ever been in my life, other than Alcoholics Anonymous, tried to tell me about their God. This is what our God looks like. This is how you pray to Him. This is how you interact with Him. These are the things you've got to do to have a relationship. You all didn't come with that. You said, here's a plan of action that seems to work for us. And when you do these things, we think this will probably happen for you too. And it was happening right before my eyes. And I had this buddy, Ethan, that when I was out in California, he sent me a plane ticket. He asked me to be the best man at his wedding. I didn't see fit to show up. I didn't get on the plane. His father sent me a tuxedo, paid for everything, the plane ticket. I didn't get on the plane. I didn't call. Nothing. Over the years, that started to bother me, especially once I got sober. Um, because you hear about, you know, bondage of self. Bondage of self, the best illustration I have is if you're doing Alcoholics Anonymous today, chances are you have a cell phone. Chances are your favorite part about that cell phone is that you have caller ID, which means you can look and see. I mean, you can't, you can't even pay your bills. You probably don't even have a home yet. But we got a cell phone with caller ID, right? And we can see who's calling and whether or not we want to answer it because there's a lot of people looking for us for a lot of different reasons. And we all want something. And I can't answer the phone for a lot of people, you know, for a lot of reasons. And when we're in that Walmart or wherever, I gotta be, I gotta look before I go down the next aisle. Because there might be that person there that I don't want to bump into. That's living in bondage of self. You know, and, and, and this step allows me to start getting out of that. And whenever Ethan would call, I couldn't answer the phone for years. And I heard from mutual friends what was going on in Ethan's life with this white female was woman. You know, and I heard he had a little kid, and I heard he had another little kid. And I, I heard him in school, and I just kept hearing reports, you know. You hear reports about your friends, but I can't dare talk to them. Because I know a couple of things. Because if you, it's amazing to me. It's not just me. I talk to other alcoholics. What we think we know. I knew he was telling his wife about his scumbag, drunken bum friend, Rich, that didn't show up at our way. If you'd have met this guy, you were lucky he didn't show up and be my best man, because he'd have probably ruined the way. You know, and I knew what he'd been telling those kids about, you know, my old friend. I used to have this drunken bum friend named Rich. He'd been telling those kids how crummy I was. And I knew this. 
You know, my sponsor reminded me, you know, Rich, you are not a mind reader. You have no idea what's going on. You're barely a mind user. <laughs> <laughs> so I called and I asked if there was a time that I could go see a... And by this point, I, I, I'd already done it. I had some under my under my belt, you know. And I said, hey, Ethan, I'm in a, this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm trying to live a sober life without a thing called the ninth step. i got to do this thing so that I don't ever take another drink with alcohol. Part of it's trying to set past my past straight, you know. And if you have a few minutes that I can please come talk to you and your parents, I'd really appreciate that. He said, yeah, you could be here Saturday morning at 7 a.m. if you can make it. Now, this is about seven years after the wedding, so he'd been hanging on for a little resentment. <laughs> but I deserved it. You know, and he lived three hours away, so I got up at 3.30 in the morning, and I put on some clothes, and he all called me to dress when I was making it a man. Because I'm a representative of you. With every man I make, I'm a representative of you. And I say what you taught me to say, nothing more. I got down there and I parked myself's parents' car in the driveway and I knocked on the door. And I was five minutes early because I always am now. And he opened the door. And his wife was in back of him. His parents were in back of him. But what I didn't expect was as soon as that door opened, this little kid darted over, wrapped a hold of my leg like a tree trunk, man, and looked up at me and said, You're my Uncle Rich Daddy he said one day I'd beat you. And uh, I started crying really bad right there. And um, I didn't see that one coming by a long shot. You know, this this nine out of ten the unexpected happens. I can't read this sentence. Up. When this starts happening in your life, this book becomes a real living, breathing part of your life. You know, Joe and Charlie go to go around the country and other countries. Coming, the big book comes alive. And that's what has happened in my life. This is this is not a theory. This is something that you all have let me live. You know, and after that I went in the back room and I talked to him and, and, and I told him what was going on in my life. You know, I was trying to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, those kids, gosh. And it became crystal clear to me what you all had taught me about putting up a wall between myself and others. The only thing that kept me away from those kids for the last six years was me. My ego, my inability to admit that I was wrong. Hey, I made a mistake here. I lost six years of interacting with those kids. And I'm not losing another minute. I will tell you that I was there with Allison. Every Christmas we go there with gifts for those kids. Spend Christmas Eve after we with our family and we go there. When it snows, I drive the three hours to take the sleigh riding. When it's their birthdays, I show up. And you know how little kids think. They look at me with these big eyes, and they think it's an accident. They go, Uncle Rich, you show up on all the good days. <laughs> you know, I could have missed it all. I could have missed it all. And I went in the back room with his father and his mother, and I sat down with them. His name's Mr. True. His name's Truett. Oh, Mr. True. And I said, uh, you know, Mr. True, <laughs> this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm part of my home group, and uh, I'm doing this thing called the Ninth Step, and I go through the Ninth Step spiel that I did. You know, I, I, I knew I had a pocket full of money, and I said, I, I know I owe you a tuxedo and a blanket, but I owe you a wedding cost, and I, I want to make this right, and I don't know how to make it right. Please tell me how I can make this right. And so I'm taught to end all of my amends. 
Uh, I talk about what I think I did, and then I ask you, how can I make this right? And then my life is in your hands. That's scary. Um, but it's the deal. And then he laid one on me. He said, well, you owe me $1,372. He said, but you don't owe me. If you're really a member of this Alcoholics Anonymous and you really have a home group, what you're to do is you're to pay that back no more than $10 at a time. Take donuts to your home group and save the receipt. If there's a new guy there, fill their car up with gas if they can't have trouble getting the meetings to save the receipt. When you go to that homeless shelter that you told me you volunteer at, take them some donuts and save the receipt. No more than $10 at a time is to be on any one of these receipts. When those receipts equal $1,372, you bring them to me. On that day, this amends will be complete. By the way, Rich, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for 28 years. I've been praying for you and Nathan since you've been this big. Didn't see that one. Life was getting pretty good for me. You know, I cleared up the, the Maryland warrant. And this is when uh, Roger sprung it on me. You know, how free do you want to be? There's this last deal out there in California, that judge that told you. He told you that, you know, Rich, if you go to these 10 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have small felony cocaine possession. Um, state not federal, just a little state possession case. He said, I'm inclined not to ruin your life, is what the judge said. You go to these ten classes, you do this, this, and this, it's going to be as if this never happened. And if you don't complete what I'm telling you to do, you will do every day of the five years so you could. I did what I always did. I meant from the fiber of my being. Yes, Your Honor, I'll do everything you say, you'll never see me again. You know, and that was about ten years prior. Because I didn't know that I wouldn't be able to stay sober for anything like the amount of time he was asking me to. Uh, I wanted to, I just didn't have the ability. So I had to go back and face this judge and told me I was going to do every day of five years. And I tried to explain to him, you know, that about like I was telling him. In fact, you've got swimming pools. Now I'm making me 500 bucks a week. I've got my own house, you know, and this and that. My mom loves me. We're good friends. My sister's in my... I can't do this to all these people. You know, and he said, what are you talking about? What a great time to go to jail. He said, this is really a good time. You live in a stinking little trailer. You're not married. You don't have any kids of your own. You hang out. I mean, this is really a good time to go to jail. And, you know, it's good to have a sponsor, because I did not see it that way. I got on the plane, you know, he confiscated a little bit of my money so that I, because I thought I didn't know a paycheck, it seems you know, ridiculous. Uh, by this point, I've been through the book enough to start to try to use it as a weapon against him. I pulled out the paragraph our friend was talking about earlier. You know, it says I shouldn't do heroics. They're not talking about you, Rich. <laughs> and, um, he found, you know, and, uh, it says wherever possible. It doesn't say 3,000 miles away. He says, it says wherever possible, not whenever. You keep getting to California. Give me a hundred dollars each week. And he's taking a little ticket and get this plane ticket out there. He wrote the judge a letter. I wrote the judge a letter saying I'm coming to turn myself in on this ten-year-old warrant uh, to do the five years or whatever the court would like me to do. I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to do this to stay sober. We have a 
Step called the non-step. I wrote this long letter. He wrote a letter telling him I'm coming. Uh, I get out there. I would like to tell you that I did it with some type of, you know, dignity or something. I didn't. You could have seen the sweat circles under my arms. And, I mean, it, it, it was not pretty, but I was there. Um, and I went into that courtroom at 9 o'clock that, that morning. And uh, God put this prosecutor in the room. God, God bless her. She was just so... Uh, Ledger, she was one of these sandpaper types that I would describe. <laughs> and she was so abrasive that she loved the judge more. <laughs> I think that's all that happened. God put her there that day for me. Isn't that something? And this woman looked at the judge and she said, Well, Your Honor, you said that if Mr. Rutger didn't do the ten classes in AA and you were going to put in jail for five, those were your words, Your Honor. You know, and she's going, what I didn't know, and what she didn't know, what we didn't know, was that judge went on to say, Madam Prosecutor, I had 36 letters in front of me from priests that host meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, from members of Alcoholics Anonymous, talking about this young man goes to at least five to seven meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a week. I asked you to go to 10 meetings 10 years ago. By my calculation, he's been over a thousand. And they say he mops the church floor when they're over. And they say that he's always got new people with him. And he volunteers at a homeless shelter in his community. Why am I going to put him in California's jail and spend our money? Mr. Brockett, you seem to have done the ten meetings. Not the way I told you to do them. <laughs> but you've done well over, yeah. I've been to court so many times. I've been arrested 36 times. If you pull my rap sheet, which my sponsor did, um, you know, my fourth step, I do my fourth and fifth step in my sponsorship family. We get that. We go to the Maryland State Police. We get an NCIC background check on you, print it out, a full rap sheet, and we make you pay and get your credit report. So we have, as I see myself, as the law sees me, and as the credit bureau sees me, because they're not always the same, trust me. <laughs> I was always a good guy and I meant well. And hold up my rap sheet and says, yeah, but this says you're an idiot. <laughs> so that's what you would see. And I know what happens to people that were in my boat. And he said, go back to Maryland and keep doing what you're doing. It seems to be working. And boy, my God got a lot bigger that day. I was on the phone now, but I'll tell you how big I was. I never want to forget it, that though my return flight ticket is taped in the inside cover of my big one. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even believe it. And I called my sponsor, I said, I'm coming home! And, uh, you know, we were just laughing and having a ball. And he said something that also changed my life. Or he said, well, you're supposed to be in jail today. And, uh, you know, for the next five years, really. And since you're out there in San Diego... You know that college that you went to with that dean that kicked you out? That was a Jesuit school. And you now know what those Jesuit people stand for. And when you got arrested, it was in the Los Angeles Times. It was in the San Diego Union Tribune. You brought a lot of shame on that institution. It said Jesuit student, 27 kilos of cocaine. That is not what they had in mind for their university. <laughs> Why don't you go talk to her? Because, you know, what else do you have to do? And, that seemed like small potatoes after this first experience. So I go over there to the university and I, Terry Wilson, 
bean tables and still work here. And I'm thinking maybe I'll get a freebie show like the title. Uh, I said, I don't know if you remember me. Uh, my name is Rich Parker. And she said, oh, I remember you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've served a little over two years in this program. One of the things we have is called the Ninth Level. I have to try to amend the record of my past, clear it up, and set things right. And I have to do this so that I don't ever, ever have to take another drink, and that's really important. I have no idea how I'm going to separate all the shame and embarrassment I brought to the university. Uh, but I'm willing to do whatever you tell me. And she said, really? She said, well, if that's true, come with me. I'd like you to fill out this application and return here to our law school. And I would like you to graduate, and I would like you to become a lawyer and make us proud. And I said, okay. Get a load of this one. <laughs> this lady's lost her mind. She has no idea I've been arrested 36 times, and even if I happen to somehow make it to law school, they would never let me take the bar exam. And they will never approve me to practice law and let me into the bar and pass the ethics board, even if that happens. She doesn't know any of that. And he said, well, did you tell her that you would do whatever she said to make things right? I said, yes, I did. And then go do what she said. <laughs> And I filled out the application. I went to the law school. Um, I graduated. I did well there. It turns out that alcoholics seem to do really well or we quit. I don't know if that's anybody's. I know very few alcoholics that return to school C students. Silver alcoholics aren't C students. We get A's and B's or we quit and do something else. You know, but you know, we're, we're not kind of middle-of-the-road people. That was just my experience of what I've seen with a couple of my guys. I got a couple of straight-A students that... Uh, you know, came to AA and could barely read how it works. And now they're in college, killing it. You know, and I love, that's one of my favorite things, is when I get to go watch one of these guys walk across the stage with a piece of paper in their hand, pretty wild. And know that maybe in some twisted way, and maybe I know there's ego in this, but I get to feel like God helped me be a part of that somehow. You know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Some days it feels like it. You know, but maybe I got to touch a life a little bit. And, uh, and I came back and I got the best job that, you know, that I could get right out of law school. I got a courtship for the two circuit court judges. Circuit court is the highest court that we have in our state. It's where all the appeals and big murder cases and everything goes to the circuit court. And the two judges hired me. And I took the bar exam, you know, and I passed that. And they hired me. Knowing my past, you know, I was always told to just list everything and just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. You know, I went in and they, they, when they were interviewing me, they said, you know, gosh, you have great references. You did tremendous in law school. Your bar exam you know, was great, but what's with this 36-page, 36 arrests? And I said, fellas, you guys know because I told you I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. What you might not know is that there's a substantial period of drinking required for membership. <laughs> And these guys had the same response that you did. They just started laughing. And I said, guys, that's all I can tell you. If I drink, you got big trouble on your hands. You're not going to want to practice, to practice law anyway. I'll surrender my license happily, but if I'm sober, I think I'll do a great job for you. And they said, all right. And they sent the paperwork off to Annapolis. And this next thing I'm going to tell you is important, because my other experience with the ninth step, we have a choice in alcoholics anonymous. 
how free do you want to be when you want to do it? We can either clean up the wreckage of our past or our wreckage will clean us up. It happens one way or the other. We can clean it up or it will clean us up. And they sent the paperwork off to Annapolis to pay me and get me on the books. It's a state jealous one. And they came back and I told my sponsor, my mother, my sister, the great wonders of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been hired as a circuit court clerk. The greatest job a guy can get out of law school. Can you believe this? The next week they called me back in the office and said, we can't hire you. And Annapolis came back and said, you have three felony warrants out of the state of Colorado. We cannot hire a fugitive felon. I'd forgotten. They were not on my step list. Step. It wasn't intentional. It, I mean, believe me, I'd have gone everywhere and done it. I'd have gone there in a heartbeat if I had gone. And here they were, they just cleaned it and just swept that job out before it even started. But it turns out that warrant, which, hey, I've had to call out there, you know, it was in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And it turns out there was a guy I worked for named Skip. Skip used to pay me and pay me well and treat me really well and really liked he would sometimes even give me bonuses based on the, you know, like how well I did in business that model. And as my drinking progressed, Monday and Friday absenteeism increased, and my productivity decreased, and the bonuses started to evaporate. But I didn't see it that way. You know? I was always underpaid and underappreciated. Uh, we have any of those folks here with us today. They just don't recognize what I do for them. Can you believe this? So I started writing my own bonus checks. I was just getting this money. I was just getting what I deserved. And out of the company's account, I would write myself the bonus check. No more than he used to pay me. The same amount. This wasn't stealing. It was taking what was mine. That was how I saw it at that time in my life. Turns out that the state of Colorado doesn't see it that way. They call it felony check fraud. And each check. Recounts. Um, so I got to fly out there to Colorado. I sit down with Skip. I give him a nice step off and ask how I can make this right. And he says, You're on the nice step? I've tried so many times and I've never made it past the third step. You're in the step nine? And it was almost as if these checks and my whole reason for being there, he just forgot about it. He was just fascinated that I made it to step nine. And that he kept getting stuck on step three. And we'd start talking about the big one, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he did want his money. He said, you know what? I'm the one that got those warrants out for you. I didn't mention the warrants. I mentioned what I owed, what I took, and that I wanted to make right. He came up with, if you have this money on my desk by Christmas, and it was the one before Christmas. I'm going to walk across the street and get these warrants knocked out because I did tell him about the job I applied for and how this came about. He said, man, I don't want to hold you back. You get me that money, I'm going to go take care of this. And he did. I had the money and he did. It was very humbling at, at that point. In, in sobriety, I had to go to my sister, my mother, my girlfriend, my aunt, my uncle, my goddaughters, who were my aunt and uncle, so I three of them, and say, hey, I owe this man a lot of money. I owe about $8,000. Um, and I said, if I pay this back in a month, like he requires me to do before Christmas, I'm not going to be able to add much of the Christmas for you guys. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get anybody gifts and I'll just be part of this year. 
And that was, that's the stuff that's the hardest for me to do, because while my ego is considerably less, it's still massive. You know? I'd like to give that little sister a Christmas present. I'd like to give my mom a Christmas present. You know? And I know there's ego caught in that. And, you know, they could have they cared less. They said, that's what you got to do, get free and do it. You know, because they've been watching my life. And it turns out that people like to cheer <coughs> for America. People don't get to, they don't have a chance to be part of America all the day. That dean of the law school, when she had me come back there, I, I, I don't tell this a lot, but I said, I can't get any student loans. The school is $33,000 a year for three years. $100,000. I said, you know, I've used up, uh, my credit's destroyed. I just finished paying off the IRS. She said, you know, I just became a program and left a piece of land. And we just uh, sold it for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And I know it's far from home. You're making a place to stay in the car. Why don't you live with me at my house? You know, I have an extra car that you can drive. And I'm going to go ahead and pay for your law school. You can pay me back on the account. Because I'm pretty confident you're going to make this proud or you wouldn't bother coming back after. How in the world does that happen? That's the same lady that kicked me out of that school, that looked me in the eye and said, you could sniff one. And smelling like booze in class, and I lied bold face to her and said, I'm just have allergies. And she knew it. But she had more faith in me than me, just like you all had more faith in me than me. And you all kept rooting me on. When I came back, I got a phone call. I asked those judges, I said, guys, this job's not supposed to start until September. Can I have six months to get this straight? We hold the job for me. We really take care of those warrants. I forgot. And they said, yeah, what the heck? You know, we just hired a felon with 36 arrests. What's, what's three more? We'll hold it for you. you know? And so, so they did. And when I get back, I'm thinking I'm getting ready to take this job. In, and the phone rings. And it turns out that the federal government of the United States of America gave the state of, America, state of Maryland a federal grant. Gangs and drugs have become really bad in my state. And they said, we're looking to hire an assistant state's attorney for the state of Maryland that starts up a task force prosecuting gangs and narcotics crimes. And it's our understanding, Mr. Brockman, that you know a little bit about the importation of <laughs> And I remembered you folks talking to me about our greatest asset will be our dark. Our darkest past will become our greatest asset. And once again, you know, your book started to come alive to me. I got pulled over Thursday in a hurry coming home from work because I wanted to go surfing Thursday before I got on the plane flight. When I get pulled over for speeding, you know, which I was doing, they pulled me over, you know, and I, and I give them my job and substance. You know what they say to me? Oh, we're sorry, Mr. State's Attorney. Have a nice day. And I say, thank you, officer. You're doing a great job. And I don't know how a guy like me, you know, they give you a badge. I mean, is that nuts? And, and I have these interactions with police all the time. You know, whether they're my friends and they're on my side in court and just court cases. And, and I get to interact with you folks every day. Because a lot of people, a lot of prosecutors just see a robbery. I don't just see a robbery. I see a guy that had to get into that pharmacy at 3 o'clock in the morning because as Bill talks about in his story, the morning terror and madness were on. 
That's when I would steal from my wife's under curse. In other words, I'm willing to do anything. I don't need another drink. I know where that guy's coming from. That's not just a robbery. You know? They might see just whatever it is. Simple theft. Um, I'm able to sit down with that person and a lawyer present some choices, um, which is crazy. You know, but I get to present some choices. I'm thinking, you guys, and I'm not allowed to talk to the defendant. They're there, they're sitting right here with me. I get to say things like, does your guy think he's just a thief? Does he think he might have a problem with that? And I think that this is, I really feel when I get up each morning, my first thought from that guy whose thought was, when I first talked to you guys Friday night, where I was in the place where I would wake up each morning and my very first thought was, oh crap, another day. I now wake up and I say that prayer and I have this feeling that I've tried to think of ways to talk about this so many different ways and the best I could come up with is that feeling I had when I was in like second grade. When I would wake up and I would smell the grass outside. You know, my mom was kind of sending me out the door with that little lunch pail. And I didn't know what we were going to do that day at recess, but I knew it was going to be cool. You know, I didn't know if it was going to be kickball or dodge or, you know, I didn't know if little Sally was going to talk to me that day or Becky was going to smile at me. And, you know, and I was going to get to talk about my show and tell project. I just knew there was something fantastic. It was like a genuine excitement for the day. You know, at recess, you kind of just lay on your back in the grass and look up at the clouds and name shapes and see if you saw some animals. It sounds goofy, but it's the best I could come up with. It was, it's almost a naive, childlike excitement. I wonder what's going to happen today. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. Uh, I'm not materially wealthy in any sense. You know, I don't want Franklin either. You know, I have credit cards today just for the new people that have my name on them. <laughs> and it turns out when you you know you pay your bills and stuff, they just give you those. It's like a byproduct. You're sober living. You know? So if you want some stuff, you know, live sober. You get stuff. I'm not saying that. It seems to you know, when we straighten out um, you know, spiritually, the physical and mental and the, the, the material stuff, I think follows. I think it's pretty hard um, to live a spiritually rich life to be materially poor. It just doesn't happen for us. And um, with that, I, I, I'm going to tell a last story because it was one of my greatest gifts so far. It just happened. Two weeks ago, my little sister, she was born with a hole in her heart and, and all kinds of other heart defects. She's had a bunch of pacemakers. And she's always treated at Johns Hopkins Hospital. It's one of the places where I need to go read Charles Pierce. And she's gotten in there the best, some of the best heart doctors in the world. And she had this heart procedure that was supposed to take eight hours, taking out old pacemakers and wires, and then this new specialist was supposed to show up and put in a new one. And this little girl's 30 years old, and she's like the jewel of my life. You can't tell. And my family calls me. She's been under the knife from 9 a.m. to about 5 p.m. And my mom's there, my aunt and uncle's there, the in-laws are all there. I just stayed at work because one of the things I'm able to do now is know where I'm not needed. I don't have to poke my nose in anything. I'm not a doctor. One more person pacing the hallways creating anxiety was not needed. So I stayed at work and I was waiting to hear from them. And they said, the surgery went great. 
surgeon that's supposed to put the pacemaker that scheduled this surgery six months ago forgot that he scheduled the surgery. He's in New Jersey playing golf with some friends. She's in there with her chest and, and, uh, and they're screaming about malpractice or anything. You know, she said, stop, stop yelling that word in the hospital. The hospital saved her life a lot. The second you talk about suing doctors, you're not going to find good medical care for 500 miles. When I'm doctors, we've all forgotten stuff in our lives. And I'm, I'm almost some days to the point when it's not me thinking and God thinking for me. Things come out of my mouth like that, where I automatically see the fourth column. You know, I just, I'm, I'm automatically already over there. Um, where I can see where I'm like that guy. You know, I've forgotten stuff. I don't show up at people's weddings. You know, I know better than that. I, he forgot something. Let's be calm and see what they say. And they said they were going to close her up, put in this external pacemaker, keep her alive through the night in intensive care, get hold of this guy to be in there the next day. The next day, at 7 a.m., I get another phone call um, saying that he wasn't coming because he had a lunch date. That became unacceptable. <laughs> I got in the car, and I started the three-hour drive, which took about an hour and a half speed I was driving. Um, so I don't get tickets. Uh, to the hospital, and I wasn't sure what to do. And when I'm not sure what to do, I just start praying, because some days it's the best I can do. Direct my thinking, direct my thinking, direct my thinking. Sometimes I just repeat stuff. And uh, Allison and I, one of our best friends, that she babysits their kid. She's a surgeon at the hospital right near our house. Her name's Andre. came into my head, call Andre. Because you know, I know lawyers protect lawyers, doctors protect doctors, nurses look out for nurses, you know, they kind of look out for her. And I, I said, I'm going to swing something by. I'm on my way to Hopkins. I don't really want to raise a fuss. But what this is what happened. What, what's your take on this? And she said, that's unexcusable. We said, a, a scheduled surgery of that magnitude not to show up and then to say you're going to lunch, you know, that, that's called abandonment of care. That's malpractice. It's something needs to happen to this guy. You know, that's an no, that cannot happen. Well, what do I do? And she said, when you get there, you're going to want to ask for the risk management department. So it's how the risk management is where they're going to keep the team away. They're going to put you in a room, probably eight or ten of them. And they're going to try to gang up on you. And she said, just stay calm. Tell them that you're an attorney from Washington City, Maryland. But tell them more importantly, that little girl's big brother. You don't want this thing to become a bad legal situation, but they're not leaving you a lot of choice. They need to get a doctor. She said, who was that doctor? And I told her the doctor's name. And she said, oh my gosh. You are so lucky that that guy didn't show up. The last three out of four of my patients that I sent from PRMC Hospital that insisted on having heart surgery, Johns Hopkins, he killed three out of four of them on the table. And he's involved in two pending medical malpractice suits which I'm involved in because they were my patients, so I got named too. I wouldn't let him operate on my dog. And I just started to think, wow, God's got this thing covered. <laughs> I thought I had to do something. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I get it. And uh, 
I did what she said and I got there. And it was one of the proudest moments in my life. She doesn't know this story. She doesn't listen to these tapes. She's not interested in what I have to say. She looks at me and goes, I lived it. I don't want to hear anything. I like the brother yard now. You know? And, uh, but I will tell you, it was one of the most spectacular moments in my life to walk into risk management. They put me in a room with four lawyers. All of them in their late 60s, older, wiser than I. I'm pretty new at this thing. Uh, but I got to say the words that you all made possible in my life. My name is Rich Brocker, I'm an attorney from Washington City. And on that day, those words made a difference. Because they all sat back in their chair. And I said, and more importantly, I'm the little girl's big brother that's sitting there with a heart up for 24 hours. Because your staff surgeon was too busy playing golf. And I like golf, so I understand that. The hospital was very kind to my sister and saved her life on many occasions. I love this hospital and I love the doctors and I don't want any problems here. I want to continue to come to you guys for help because we're going to need you. But I'm not sure what you guys would do. Your attorneys too, if that was your little sister. There's got to be somebody here that within the next hour can get that pacemaker in her clothes. She's open to a lot of infection. I have a friend that's a surgeon who told me there's an urgency in this and we need to get this done. And we just find a room Please make this happen. I'm going to go back. My family doesn't know I'm here yet. I have a mother who's hysterical. I'm going to go keep her calm. I'm going to keep my family calm. I'm going to sit by my sister. And I'm going to pretend that we didn't have this conversation as long as the surgeon shows up within the hour. And they said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how to run a hospital with this magnitude. It takes weeks to have an available operating room. It takes months to schedule a surgeon. All of the surgeries and operating rooms that they've been planned months ago. Somewhere I didn't get mad. Somehow I said, guys, you're right. You taught me how to say that. I never got to say it. I said, you're right. I have no idea how to hospital this magnitude. But it seems like you guys do. And I'm just going to suggest that you start doing whatever it is you have to do to move things around, get an operating room, and get a surgeon. I'm going to go be with my family. And hopefully we're going to pretend that none of us talk. Thank you. I went back and I sat next to my little sister. I just sat there and I just held her hand. And she was scared and I couldn't tell her what I just did because it would make her more scared because she knew how serious it was. And about 45 minutes later, a doctor appeared. And he was ready to do the surgery. And they mysteriously came up in the room to do the surgery. And they rolled her down the hallway and took her in. And for all the stuff that I've gotten to do for her, on that day, when I got to drive back to my house, I felt like a real life good brother. The event was done within me, not within her, on my side of things. It was, I knew that if nothing ever happened, all of these gifts, it was like everything in AA that has ever happened to me all kind of lined up, if for nothing else, for this one moment. It seemed like maybe all these events, maybe going to California, turning myself in, talking to that dean, going to law school, Somehow listening to you guys are passing this test. Doing all of these things that took years. And I got to, in that one moment, be there for my little sister. That, like, somehow it was all worth it. And, well, that's all I can say about that. I drove back over to the big bridge, public day bridge, and I drove over that bridge, man. I felt like, you know what, you're the real deal. You're a real big brother. Now, nothing's medicine. Nothing's broke. And um, she's home, she's recovered, she went back to work. Uh, last week was her first week back at work. 
and, uh, and everything's fine, you know, we're back to being buddies, coming up on Thanksgiving. And all I can say to you guys is thank you for challenging me, thank you for pushing me, thank you for not allowing me to settle for ground beef when I was playing beyond the I know we're going to go have a great banquet and a great time together tonight. I'm looking forward to the speaker tonight and join it and be on duty and uh, get me to listen. So thank you for my life because if I'd have listened to me, I'd have settled for something less than the best, which you all want me to have the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.